You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you're challenged to think about faith. This series is miscellaneous episodes from Douglas's website. Today's lesson is on contraception. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Hello, you're listening to a podcast on contraception, whether it's right or wrong, the ethics of contraception. What does the Bible say? Contraception is a measure that prevents pregnancy, and it has a very long history. In the notes that come with this podcast, I've given you a link to a two-minute video, which is good for a visual. Uh, if you want to know about the history of contraception, which is at least nearly 4,000 years old. The earliest Bible passage commonly referred to on this topic is in Genesis 38, and believers are divided on the subject. Some take Genesis 38 as an absolute prohibition, and others would say that, well, the passage has nothing to do with the subject or any modern relevance at all. In this article, in this podcast, we're going to begin with exploring Genesis 38. What is that passage really all about? And I will challenge the traditional interpretation that it forbids birth control. And we'll then back up to early Genesis in order to examine the nature of marriage itself. The remainder of our study will take in a number of passages in both Testaments before settling on a workable conclusion that I hope will commend itself to all Bible students. Now, it's not the purpose of this lesson to give uh, contraceptive advice for that, you need to go to your your doctor. But let's begin with just a definition uh, from the free dictionary. Contraception, intentional prevention of ovulation, fertilization of an egg cell, or implantation of a fertilized egg in the uterine wall through the use of various drugs, devices, sexual practices, or surgical procedures. Well, that's a definition Of course, as Christians, we don't just follow the world's definitions or directions. We want to know what the Bible says. And as with many complex issues, we begin thinking we're just asking a single question. And soon we realize that, well, there's a lot more involved. There are multiple questions. And in this case, I I believe the issue of contraception entails at least these questions. One, is it permissible? Two, is procreation the sole purpose of intercourse? Three, Does the Bible provide direct answers for our modern questions? And four, is family planning an area of personal liberty? So we begin in Genesis 38. I'll be reading today from the Holman Christian Standard Version. Verse 6, And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur... Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Now, this passage is not going to make a whole lot of sense unless we 
understand the law of the Torah that is behind the passage. There's something Onan does that is a flagrant disregard for what was taught in the Jewish law. So let me read that passage, Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is sometimes called leveret marriage. The idea is that if you have no offspring, you have no son, your name would die out, either because your daughters would intermarry with other families or because there'd be no children at all. And to prevent that from happening, you are to take care of your uh, deceased brother's family by basically taking his wife as another wife of yours. Now, obviously, culturally, this is a very different world. It's a world where polygyny is practiced and accepted. Polygyny is the variety of polygamy where a man has more than one wife. But Deuteronomy stipulated that we should be willing to marry the brother's widow if there has been no issue. But instead of doing what was right and in obedience to Torah, Onan really just wanted to improve his own situation. I mean, he was going to inherit from Judah. But if his brother's line was out of the picture, if I'm reading it correctly, he would inherit half of the estate as opposed to only a third of the estate. So he's doing it for like a 16 or 17 percent increase. And for this reason, he spilled his semen on the ground when they were together despite this God-given mandate, to build up his brother's line. Now, this uh, action that Onan took is uh, called in some languages Onani. Onani is the word for masturbation in Swedish, Danish, German, Indonesian, and, and many other languages. But that's not really the point of the, the passage. Uh, I'm not quite sure I would even, I, I'm not sure that that's even a correct definition because it's more of a coitus interruptus. It, it follows uh, penetration of, of the woman. What's going on here? Onan was willing to use Tamar's body without fulfilling her. Now, he was really just thinking of himself. He pretended to follow the letter of the law, but he wasn't following the intent of the law. He helped himself to her body. And this meant, the way he went about it, that Ur's name, his brother's name, would be forgotten and Tamar would be left destitute, presumably not remarrying. Therefore, God, who looks after the widow, Deuteronomy 10 and a thousand other passages, God raged against him. Who does he think he is? Did he think he was above the law? Did he imagine that the Lord wouldn't see what he was doing, spilling the seed? Or was Onan trying to deceive God and man, you know, like Ananias and Sapphira? At the very least, he was defaulting on serious family responsibilities. At any rate, he paid for his sin with his life. In short, although the passage has much to teach us, it's not a scripture on contraception. The only thing it has in common with contraception is that by his withdrawing, he prevented uh, the, uh, his brother's wife from, from becoming pregnant. So, in a way... He is practicing contraception, 
But as we see, the real issue has to do with the estate, with money, with family responsibility. It's it's has nothing to do with the the purpose of uh, sexual union. Now let's go back just a little bit further. God provides for our needs. Our God knows our needs. He cares about our needs, and He provides. It's not a bad lesson outline. And unlike Genesis one, Genesis two gives no mention of procreation. You know, in Genesis 1, you have the the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that was something that mankind was to do. That was something that most men did. And even if some were not directly involved in procreating, um, collectively, there's no question that people understood and were able to follow that direction. But Genesis 2, where we zoom in and, and get more of a sense of uh, the da- dynamics of faith and sin and, and the character of the first couple. Genesis 2 has no mention of procreation. And yet that's exactly the place where we might expect to find it. Because this is where God is trying to provide for man's needs. You know, who will be a suitable partner for the man? Is it an animal? No, we go through all the animals. It's a woman. It's someone who comes from his very side, someone who is his equal. In every way, sex is the lesser priority than companionship. You know, th- this is not a search for a being that Adam could have sex with. It's, search, it's a search for companion. And note the wording in 224. You know, it says, for this reason, let me, let me just read 24, 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So this is a description of how things works, how things work. It's not a prescription. It's not a, a passage telling us about sex, how to have sex, what to do, what not to do. In fact, the purpose of marriage, another purpose of marriage besides children um, and and shall we say, a companionship is oneness, it's unity. And note also that they are naked and not ashamed. So this extends well beyond sexual interaction. It's challenging to us because there's an application in the area of emotional openness. Their lives were open, an open book you know, before each other. In short, sex is not limited to procreative purposes. There's nothing in Genesis 2 that says that sex is only if you're planning or willing to have babies. There is, in other words, such a thing as godly sexual play. And there are a couple other passages I won't have time to look at that actually illustrate that in the Bible. So in the beginning, there's a general mandate for procreation, chapter 1. But when we start looking at the male-female relationship, that seems to be in the background. It's about companionship. It's about love. It's about unity. Well, I mentioned before that many Christians are divided on that. These days, most Protestants accept family planning. Uh, and they would look at Genesis 1, the divine commission to procreate. And they say, that's fine, but there's no need. You don't have to have children if you don't want to. Um, they're not going to be looking at Genesis 38 unless they're arguing with a Roman Catholic. Protestants and Catholics alike officially teach that procreation is the essential purpose of marriage. I mean, that's even there's even a line in the typical wedding vows. Historically, Protestants and Catholics have stood together against contraception. 
at least until a few decades into the last century. And think about it, though. Through most of human history, families aimed to have as many children as possible. That's more workers on the farm. And that's a better chance that the family line won't die out. Uh, and in most of human history, and in most parts of the planet, not to have children was considered to be something shameful. We may be surprised that the historical position of Protestants has not been to support contraception, at least until recently. Yet, as with so many things, our society has undergone a lot of transition, you know, multiple moral and ethical changes in this last half century or so. Now let's talk about the Apostle Paul. So in the previous section, we see that Catholics went one way, Protestants the other way. It's not really a Catholic-Protestant issue. What we're trying to do is see what the Bible clearly says to sort out our traditions or our preferred interpretations. The Apostle Paul talks a lot about marriage. The Bible talks a lot about marriage, much more than it talks about sex, and even more than it talks about uh, children, uh, parenting. Marriage is about meeting sexual needs. 1 Corinthians 7, you know, if a man is aflame with passion, hey, there's a solution for that. You know, you could get married. In his reasoning in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul nowhere mentions that procreation is, uh, is part of this. It, he's not saying, well, if, you, if you're burning with passion, uh, get married if you're willing to have children. In fact, the discussion nowhere even mentions procreation. It's kind of like Genesis 2. You'd expect it to be there if uh, this doctrine that we must reject contraception is actually true. In Ephesians 5, probably the most famous marriage passage from Paul, he cites uh, Genesis 2, you know, the two shall be one. And this is the high point, the climax of the apostles' argument. It's all about unity. The word one appears 14 times um, in this uh, part of the letter. The primary image of marriage is oneness. And, and we should know that because marriage reflects a picture of Christ in the church. It's relational. It's all about the relationship. Uh, is any purpose of bearing fruit, whether children or or helping others to come to the Lord, is a secondary um, effect. Our marriage is not not based upon uh, one or, or more of the purposes of marriage. And interestingly, despite all the great teaching Paul gives us about marriage, he's not married. Both Jesus and Paul turn away from the Jewish value of marriage to a path of celibacy. Now, celibacy is a gift. As Jesus mentioned in Matthew 19, as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 7, celibacy is the path of a minority. It is God's preferred path for all singles, and yet only minority of singles have the gift where they could forego sex and intimate companionship, those two elements. But Paul and Jesus both go on that path. So even though there's a lot of scripture about marriage and even about sexuality, nowhere do we find this teaching is teaching that contraception must be uh, rejected because it's against God's will. It's just not there. There are many other passages. Now let's consider a number of those before we move towards a conclusion. Song of Solomon seems an obvious one. All eight chapters celebrate sexual play, some more explicitly than others. And yet there's no connection with parenthood or procreation. It just it doesn't come into the picture. This is I admit, an argument from silence. But it's quite interesting when every single passage on the topic is silent. There's a reason for that. 
Uh, let's look at Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And that's one of my uh, favorite Psalms. And there's this illustration where children are like arrows in in the family. Uh, We have the quiver and they are presumably uh, released from not only the quiver, but from a bow as they're shot in a presumably godly trajectory. Okay. So Psalm 127 is an interesting passage. It's about God's provision of blessing for human flourishing. And here I read a modern version. You may have caught that. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. The Hebrew says sons. I think it's worthwhile considering why the translators have changed that word or opted uh, for more general or general uh, gender neutral rendering. And actually, I think they're doing the right thing here. Sons is cont- it, sons works uh, originally because at the time Psalm 127 was written, 10th century BC, almost no one was unmarried. I mean, even in Jesus' day, things were changing. You had more unmarried people, but nothing like our own day. In the time of this psalm, people understood family meant a lot more than just the nuclear family. Uh, It was generations sharing together. Having sons meant physical and economic safety. Uh, People living in the villages had no social security. They had children. That was the plan for looking after you in your old age. And sons could represent you in a lawsuit. That is, in the gate. The gate is a place where one would be tried. Uh, without sons, who would speak up for you? In these days, there was no police force. There was no jail. So it's all very much about security. And for that purpose, sons were necessary. Now, today, things have changed quite a bit. Uh, the, the emotional needs may be met uh, when a senior lives with his children. But even if he or she is in some kind of uh, home, It doesn't really matter what gender the children are. A woman is equally capable of meeting the needs of the senior as a man. The daughter and the son should do equally good jobs. Who's going to visit me one day when I'm old, right? We think about that. So today, Psalm 127, uh, it's it's children. That's the heritage from the world. If you don't have children, who's going to look after you when you're old? In biblical times, it's more than that. It's defense in the midst of hostility, uh, speaking, taking up the cause of of the father in the enemy's gate. So I think that's an interesting passage. It's an important passage because it gives us a kind of a window into the importance of children, which could be interpreted as the importance of of rejecting contraception. You know, that's really working against your own uh, best interest. Today, in many societies, in no way does it undermine your own best economic or spiritual interest to have fewer children. Another passage that is somewhat relevant is Psalm 139. This is where we read that life begins in the womb from the moment of conception. 
A passage, though, I'd like us to read next, however, is Isaiah 56. This is a great one. And I'll read uh, 4 and 5, or three, 3 to 5. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. In Old Testament Judaism, eunuchs were uh, forbidden to go into the temple. Isaiah speaks of a day when that will no longer be the case. Anyone who obeys the law will have a place. In fact, it says a monument and a name. We're speaking of posterity here. Better than sons and daughters. Can you see that? So children are not ultimate. Even eunuchs have a place in God's world. That's amazing. It's also encouraging when I read Acts 8 to realize a man who would never have children, has a place in the kingdom of God. Very encouraging. How does this apply to the subject of contraception? Well, contraception doesn't become such a big deal to support it or to reject it when the bottom line is not whether or not you have children. Now, I'm aware that in many parts of the world today, if you don't have children, you're viewed Askance. People look at you as though something's wrong. And that's traditional society, but to some extent, even in modern Western society. We're, we're moving out of that. But biblical society is much more like traditional society on the planet today. And we need to be aware of that as we read in order to understand uh, how pe why people have taken such strong positions on various topics. What else could we say? Well, Matthew 22, 30. Jesus says, in the resurrection, they will neither marry, nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So in Jesus' view of the next world, marriage and presumably procreation play no real part. Priscilla and Aquila don't seem to have had children. That's another argument um, in favor of permitting contraception. Though I don't think it's quite as strong as its proponents believe, because most of the apostles were married, but we don't read about their children. That doesn't make me think they didn't have children. And also, interestingly, nowhere does the Bible forbid infertile couples from having sex. There's some unions that are never going to lead to offspring. Never, because, well, I mean, maybe perhaps the, the man has uh, had a vasectomy or the, the woman has had ligation or hysterectomy. The, the Bible doesn't say that sex is only for procreation. And again, if you go back to Song of Solomon, it strongly implies that recreation, that is sexual play, is just fine. Well, let's conclude. What can we say? First, the Bible never narrowly restricts, restricts sex to a single purpose, procreation. Our review of many passages has not found support for the Roman Catholic position. Contraception is an area of liberty. Or to put it a different way, procreation is not the sole purpose of sex. So whether you prevent 
of pregnancy or not, uh, that is something that you can decide. Recreation, to use maybe too frivolous a word, recreational sex is in God's plan also. Now, this is not to say that abortifacients are permissible for Christians. That is, measures that lead to termination of pregnancy to, a, to an abortion. We're not saying that. Although you might like to listen to my podcast on abortion and think or maybe rethink those issues. It's not quite as black and white as we might like it to be. But in no way in this podcast do, do I want to suggest that, you know, what you do uh, in terms of contraception is up to you. And the same applies to uh, ending a pregnancy. No, that's a different subject. What else we see that in marriage, we commit to three things, to oneness, to walking in the spirit, to recognizing God's claim on our lives, even in intimate areas. For example, we are to meet the sexual needs of our spouse. But let's return to that opening question, the series of questions. Is contraception permissible? Yes, I believe it is. Is procreation the sole purpose of intercourse? No. Does the Bible provide direct answers to our modern questions? Well, not really. Though there are principles that may help us to navigate these waters. But we have to resist the temptation to make a law, to ask, what does the Bible say? And then grab at something and turn it into a regulation. Uh, that may appear wise, but it's really not the right way. Oh, and last, is family planning an area of personal liberty? Yes, I believe it is. I could be wrong. I could be convinced to a different position, but I would need evidence from the scripture, not just from tradition. Uh, I put this at the very end of the notes. If you want to explore some related subjects, there is a Q&A on in vitro fertilization, one on the morning after pill, uh, whether that means abortion or not. And there's also a podcast with extensive notes on abortion, conception, and the beginning of life. I hope that this study, this exploration has been helpful for you. Douglas's teaching. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.